Hello and welcome to the first Mic Plus One episode of 2021. On this podcast, I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastalk and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome back Adrian Cockcroft, VP of Cloud Architecture Strategy at Amazon Web Services. Adrian joined me on the podcast last year in August, and since that time, I've had numerous people tell me they wish that podcast kept going because they found Adrian's teachings so incredibly valuable. A decade ago, Adrian was telling the world about microservices, and those who listened to him gained a fundamental advantage over the competition. In this podcast, Adrian covers key trends I think will have as fundamental an impact on us a decade from now. He also summarizes some key technologies that we need to start understanding and start implementing today, ranging from serverless to new approaches to continuous resilience, all the way to more forward-looking things such as understanding and reducing the carbon footprint of our cloud workloads. I hope that you find this conversation as fascinating as I did. So with that, let's get started. Adrian, welcome back to the podcast. I've been trying not to have repeat visitors, but I got a lot of emails after the last podcast from one of my uh, closest colleagues who, who told me that was the best podcast, pointing at you, of course, nothing I said that he'd ever heard. So personally, for me, it actually changed a lot in terms of how I've been engaging and talking to people. So I can't even tell you the number of times I've said and reflected on the theory of constraints for your observe-oriented decide act loop, your OODA loop. And that, that's now become a part of uh, almost, almost every presentation I give. That term that you shared with us, the cloud for CEOs. Uh, you talked about some of this in the in the last podcast as well. I uh, recently counted. I've sent out that white paper of yours about forty times for cool. <laughs> decision makers. Well, yeah, I think it, it nailed some of the key points. Right, everyone's dealing with all of this complexity in terms of how to. Uh, measure their move to cloud, the obsession on measuring just cost. You provide everyone the very clear way of measuring value. For me, in terms of the flow framework, that's all actually measurable through flow time, how quickly we can get time to value, time to market. And I think, again, so that, that clarity of thinking has been, been super impactful with everyone I shared it with. Uh, thank you again for the introduction to David Anderson, who then joined on the podcast and told us about how he's actually accelerating his time to market at Liberty Mutual IT through serverless and on this one, I really would like to actually, you know, hit on some of these key topics and build out what you presented in this incredible talk at reInvent. So I think you you've presented us with key trends for the industry ten years ago, which many of many people are still, are now adopting today. I think you you've both you've now got in that talk such a great range of where we've come on things like serverless and from microservices to what's next with just complete changes in hardware architectures, they'll transform application architectures. But why don't we start with some, you know, any reflections you have on, on the last time we chatted? And then, and then, yeah, I'm eager to get into to you telling us about some of your predictions for application architecture in 2021. Yeah, well, thanks. It, it was a really fun podcast and it's great. We, we're sort of very aligned. And as I said then, I used to go and talk to customers and say, well, there's this book you should read, and this says, oh, yeah, we had Mick in here a week or two ago. Okay, well, I'm going to start my conversation in a completely different place. <laughs> so, okay, so exactly how are you doing this rather than you should be like all the paths and the steps. And there's so many customers that have been trying to just like lead down the path to get close to it. And every now and again, I run into somebody like Dave Anderson or some of the other customers that are right at that leading edge. You know, I don't have to explain what a worldly map is. I don't have to explain the project, project to product and all this stuff. And it's just 
those are, I really like engaging deeply with those customers. Then I start learning stuff and go, okay, so how are you doing that? How do you convince people to do these things? And we can then share that across the industry and start saying, you know, this is possible. We have, we have existence proofs. Because that was always the thing with Netflix. It was an existence proof. You can say, oh, that's impossible. No, no, we really do do that, right? And then I have all these other more recent customers I've spoken to that really are doing these things. So you can't say it's impossible and you can see the value from it. But it's still, it's maybe incredibly frustrating because quite often you just can't get there from here. So like at least you can see that it's as a thing there, right? So that's kind of the, the fun part and the pain in the neck part. Yeah, I think I, I think that's exactly it, and that's for me that what David Anderson said that, that, that you led up to is is exactly that's an existence proof that this isn't as hard as you think, and and then just the only interesting part is it, it exists. They got there, they got there fairly quickly. They trailblazed much more than others have. Let's say in the case of Lambda and and serverless, but it's really how we get from here to there. So the I think the really interesting thing is you know, again you, you've been feeding the industry these existence proofs, starting you know starting with things like microservices, and yeah, I would love. For you to you know take us through sort of the next set of existence proofs that you've come across, and and how we get there. Now you will probably have to explain some of those. So John Willis sure. on this podcast did talk about worldly maps. You you may have to go into into a little bit more explanation. But the fact that you're using these tools, these architectures, these technologies, and these services today, and in helping customers move and innovate faster, I think is key. And and you know for everyone listening, this is not things to consider for 2022. This, I think everything I, I heard from your talk is things that I know we're applying with, with organizations I work with within my organization for, for 2021. So yeah. why don't you start us off, I guess, on the 10 years ago, what, what's happened with microservices and how on earth it is that an enterprise IT organization the size of Liberty could, could move to serverless so quickly. Yeah, I actually want to start one step before that, because one year ago at reInvent, I did this hour-long talk on uh, speeding up innovation, which was then also published as this booklet that you mentioned, the, the Cloud for CEOs, which is sort of distilled version of that. And this comes back to this thing, and it's like, well, why can't you get there? And, and the way I structured this talk was there are like four things getting in your way in three stages you go through. The four things were kind of the culture, the the way you were organized, the way that you dealt with the sort of uh, financial risk and board level things like that. All those things got in the way. And then the stages you go through was the first one was learning to do something small quickly and then learning to do sort of large scale cloud native net new projects that are at scale, sort of that Netflix architecture kind of thing. And then finally, going through the data center migration, digging out all the old legacy stuff and figuring out how to modernize and migrate that. And those, that kind of gave me a framework for talking about all the different ways and sort of in, and the, the big message out of that was I saw time to value or you know, your, your flow as the, as the key metric. If you're flowing, if your time to value is really short, then you are able to innovate quickly. And that's sort of a, if everything, it forces everything else to be good, if, if that one metric is good. And that was kind of the discussion we had last time. So going into this, this year's sort of reinvent thing, I was like, well, I don't want to do that talk again. For the record, I, I do think people need to listen to that talk. I, I, yeah. I listen to it. It's again, the clarity it provides organizations. So again, we're only focused on the cost aspect of everything and they're just doing the wrong things around lifting and shifting. Yeah. And again, you provide this very clear guide, focus on time to value. You'll both reduce cost. 
you'll you know you'll innovate much faster you'll learn more quickly but oh yeah so yeah. so it's an hour long it's it's like an hour long it was just i'd given that talk in various versions of it for about a year and a half at that point it's like okay this is the last time i'm doing this <laughs> it was like i'm just gonna get it i'm gonna go through all of it we're gonna do the hour-long version I've, I've done it so many times i know the story so it was a very well rehearsed pitch and i had the, i had a nice big audience and i was on the big stage in in one of the theaters there and it was it was just like okay put a bow on it right done with that but then coming into 2021 i was thinking well what do i want to do and one of the things i sort of hacking the system for for reinvent is they don't normally list the authors but i put my name in the title of the talk <laughs> this is very much a, like a, can i get away with that okay i got away with it so it was adrian Cockcroft's topics and trends for 2021 was the title of my talk and that meant you could find it and there was a whole lot of issues with trying to find talks before the full catalog went out so the pre-catalog was a bit limited but you could find my talk so that was cool and then somehow and we all had half an hour so in, in 30 minutes i tried to get through five different topics and that was just like could i really can i jam them in there so i basically was talking about serverless the sort of high availability chaos engineering space i call it failing over without falling over and uh, those i've done two large talks that are like 40 minutes each both on those topics individually so i was just like doing a very distilled like, well, these are the top, this is the distilled version of that topic in 10 minutes kind of thing. And then uh, I talked about Wadley Maps briefly as a trend that's not really here yet, but is I, I'm predicting it's going to be a thing. Because for the whole serverless and microservices space, I kind of did one of those Google trend maps showing up the last decade or so. And showing that, you know, I started talking about this in 2013. And, you know, it's, it's pervasive now. Chaos engineering again started talking about that in 2010 and it's pervasive now. And Wadley Maps is not really pervasive yet, but I'm sort of predicting, hey, I was right twice. Like maybe I can be right on that one too. Well, there's like a future prediction. I think it's going to be big. But right now, what I'm seeing is that those leading edge customers are using Wadley Maps. You know, Liberty Mutual are some of the other customers are, and they are getting a lot of value about a lot of clarity and value from the technique so we can talk a bit about what that is and then i have this long-term project i've been long not really a project i've been thinking about really large memory systems for a long time and talking about it it's not really related to my work at aws at all but i think it's a trend that's gradually happening and then finally the thing that i'm trying to focus on myself in 2021 is around sustainability so i talked about some work i'm doing there with a linux foundation project so that was kind of the five topics yeah so let's let's dig into some of these so the i guess and i think i may as well just go in order so serverless you one thing that you mentioned that actually in, in terms of the time being now for serverless and the fact that it's not only proven out in, in tech companies as the fastest way to deliver these applications. But the fact that Andy Jassy said half of new services at AWS are now being built on top of Lambda, is that is yeah. that the case? Yeah, yeah, he said that during reInvent, we've been repeating that that quote. It's um, to say, this isn't, this isn't a niche thing. And you heard from so Dave Anderson, serverless first is kind of their philosophy. And that's kind of the phrase that, the way I think about it, I've done that talk quite a few times. You can go find videos of me giving the serverless first pitch. It's basically, if you have some problem to solve, try to use serverless to solve it 
first because you'll find out in a couple of days whether you can do it or not. And then if you need to maybe do the several week version or, or whatever, or if it was going to be a many month long project, take a week to build a prototype. And it's kind of like, you know, when I first encountered Ruby on Rails, I was working at eBay Research Labs with uh, Mike Upkey and the two of us, were, we went into a meeting and somebody was saying, we need to like prototype a thing. And I, and I was trying to Mike say, well, how quickly could we build that prototype? And I sketched out of the spreadsheet what I wanted it to look like, and he built the Ruby on Rails version. And we went to the meeting a week later with a working prototype. And we said, where did this come from? Well, we just built it in Ruby on Rails. Like, all of this stuff is default. It's all common. You can build an actual, reasonably reliable working application in an afternoon. It's basically what we did. And this was sort of mind-blowing at the time. And it showed the sort of value of using frameworks that are a very high level. And, and so what I see is, in a similar way, sort of using Lambda, you're putting together all these building blocks that are already scaled, they're already highly functional. And if you can build the Lego version of your app, you can build it in a few hours. If you have to build the full custom version, it'll take forever. So that's kind of that, that Lego analogy has been something I've been using for a while to try and explain the difference to people. So that's kind of the core of it. And the reasons why you can't do it, we just keep paying whack-a-mole with them. Like, oh, you can't do this thing. No, we fixed that. We well, can't do this. No, we fixed that. This is too slow. No, we fixed that. Right. So every time somebody comes up with a reason why they don't want to use serverless, we go and add another solution for that, that objection. So the long version of the talk has just, it's just working through all these objections and showing how they don't actually apply anymore. So that's kind of the long story. Yeah, and we'll we'll link all of these materials for your other talks. So those are those are available for those who want to follow up on this. But Adrian, how would you suggest again, you know, to the CTOs out there listening and to others, I think the the key thing is you need to you know know how this works and fundamentally, and we can you know touch on this in the worldly maps as well. This will allow you to focus on the value portion of your application, not on reinventing even more wheels as as so many are doing. So how you know, what's what's your guidance just for the next Greenfield applications that you've got? How, how do you see people getting started to sort of follow the path that we saw from David Anderson, which is trying out trying it out in the small quickly? Because I think the really the fascinating thing to me about that was just the path from trying it out on an MVP on some internal prototype in their case it was actually a pretty significant application, and how quickly they went from concept to you know to a proof point for the business that their ability to bring something to market was now 10 times faster than with any of the other stacks that they were using. So yeah. what's, what's your guidance there? I would actually start with step functions for most things. Step functions is, it gives you a stateful workflow engine, which is sort of has Lambda embedded around it. So it's actually not just serverless first, I'd say step functions first. So take a look at that and understand what you can do with that. And there is so much functionality there that gives you the framework for all these business processes that people are generally trying to build. So that's that's where I'd start. The other place that's interesting to start is if you, is call center applications. And if you see the Connect product that yep. AWS built, it's basically, you know, it's it's the sort of Alexa backend with Lambda sitting behind it and a totally dynamic call center on demand, right? And there's a lot of it's one, it turns out to be one of the easiest things to adopt because call centers are very large. The traditional vendors are very large, rigid, difficult to innovate around. 
And this is where your customers are talking to you. You want to innovate directly in that customer contact place. So that's been, it's been an interesting on-ramp for a lot of customers into serverless. Just because what you end up building out of the back of Connect is serverless bridges to everything else you do, and then you just learn to do it. So I'd say those are the interesting places. But have a hack day. If people don't know how to do it, give people permission to play, right? And I think hack days are great for that. Give people an unconstrained hack day. You can play with any AWS services you want. We'll mm -hmm. give you a burner account. We'll bring in some AWS solutions architects to kind of give you do some hand-holding if you get stuck on something and just have a day where anybody can build anything and play and they will you know it's a bit like the deep racer if you want to play in ai there's this deep racer league where people are going learning how to do those kinds of reinforcement learning and stuff like that but just in the serverless space it's 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 liberating and it's fun just pick a quiet week and have people just go build something and that way you learn and then they go back to their day jobs and go, hey, I've got a bunch of tools at my disposal. And it really doesn't take more than a day of immersion to learn, learn serverless. Like we've seen so many people go into a hack day not knowing it at all and have built ridiculously complex applications like in a day. So it's, um, that was kind of the, that's part of the talk. I mean, there's this light bulb moment I had watching people at hackathons using serverless. Well, yeah, and then just just the, how much less time goes into configuration and setup and again and yeah. wiring on those hack days. It's actually it's an amazing technology for hack days, right? We've seen the not-for-profit hackathons that have been hosted, which again, it's it's just amazing how much how quickly people can get results that are interesting. Yeah. So. And it's a bit of a dig, but it's a grain of truth to these digs, which I say that in less time you could finish building your app in less time than you'd spend trying to decide how to configure Kubernetes. Right. <laughs> 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 You're still having meetings about exactly what version how to configure Kubernetes, whereas the serverless team has finished building the app and it's off building something else, right? So it's a bit of a flippant comment, but there's definitely a grain of truth to that, right? You can certainly build a very productive environment around Kubernetes, but there is a lot more configuration, a lot more stuff to learn and a higher bar for getting into it, whereas serverless is like you're done, you built the thing. Yeah. And just on that note, the call center thing is really interesting because the the number over the past month or two, the number of large financial services organizations who've, whose business has transformed enough that the call center queues have exploded because people are not going to physical locations, everything's more online, and and I guess over the phone, which I didn't realize. It, it just seems like a, an amazing place to quickly demonstrate value to the business, given how much leverage you've got there in terms of actually applying some machine learning to proper routing of calls and, and, and other responders and so on. So yeah, I think that's some great low-hanging fruit. I saw one large bank, one, one, one of the large global banks, the, like at one point I'd say their, their AWS build was completely dominated by Connect. It was the first thing they got into production. It was their on-ramp to cloud at all, right? Yeah. And it was a huge successful rollout for them. And then they went, okay, we learned a lot there. Now, what's all this other stuff you've got? <laughs> right. So yeah. it's just almost as a standalone solution. It's incredibly powerful way of thinking about it because it's just like you can, Randall Hunt used to demo creating a call center in five minutes. You can probably go find a video of him doing that. He'd make a call center so his mom, his mom could call and find out where he was <laughs> with his demo. Right. And now, so in terms of, so let's say that that now works scaling that in terms of, you know, you're now dealing with these kind of massive data sets when mm -hmm. if you, you are in a large bank, how has Lambda and the AWS adapted to just to, to what you're describing, which is just, just much larger? Yeah. 
I'd say the very ver early versions of Lambda were more experimental as an implementation, and at some point we realized how much critical work was being done on Lambda. And there was a period several years ago where we re-implemented all of Lambda from top to bottom as a much more resilient system. And that was, you know, sort of reaction to the kind of applications people were building. So the, the overall resilience of Lambda security model, we now, it now runs as every Lambda function is in its own Firecracker micro VM. That's giving us a lot of capabilities and for, from performance and um, security isolation, all kinds of things. It used to be that there was an instance and all of the, your Lambda functions would run as contain, effectively as containers within that instance in some sense. And so they sort of compete with each other. But now you've got a separate virtual machine for every Lambda function. It gives us better isolation. So there's just all these ways that we've been hardening it over the years and the event bridge and pre-allocating functions and you really can you know if you need a land concurrency of say a hundred thousand you know call us we can do that you know that's insane like i need a hundred thousand machines a hundred thousand cpu cores wow um because i have a lot of people turning up to click on something <laughs> at once or whatever it's like we can do that Wow. Yeah, it's not the default. The default's 3,000, I think, but, you know, we can increase the default. That's just to not... You can do the incredible burst workloads and flash sales and things like that. So it's, it's so that at very low cost. So those are the that's the fun part with serverless. The the other thing you were sort of alluding to then is it gets into the next subject, which is this resilience and failing over without falling over. Another talk I've given a few times where I really start with... I mean, you can look at all kinds of places you can start with resilience, but rather than starting with trying to explain what chaos engineering is, I start by saying, so have you got a backup data center? And everyone says, yeah, of course we do. And then I say, well, how often do you fail over to it? They start looking a bit uncomfortable. And I say, well, how often do you actually kill your entire data center and just flip to the other one? And they go like, um, never. Yeah. Um, or like, only because it happened, right? Something broke. We had a, we, yeah. and then we found it didn't work, right? So you've got this. It's like buying an insurance policy that never pays out, right? You right. spent all that money by, on this insurance policy, which is sort of mandated, but you never ever claim against it because you you can't actually use the failover because it doesn't really work, and it just seems like a huge waste. And everyone agrees that's a waste. So the, the, and it's all bespoke. It's done custom every way. So the idea of the talk is that we should be able to fail over without falling over. And to do that, we use common patterns that are high, highly symmetric, highly pattern-based. Cloud gives you the standardization. These greatest cloud services give you building blocks that are very, very hardened. You should be able to build something which is absolutely rock solid. You know at any point, if anything goes wrong, it'll automatically, like, flip from running on three zones to two with no intervention, with no complaint, with like a single alert saying, by the way, a zone went down. I mean, that's a, a bit hopeful, but it's plausible, right? And you should be able to, on multi-region failover, it's usually more manually triggered for various reasons, but you should be able to say, yeah, I need to switch manual, re I need to switch out of the region, push a button and have it just happen and be a well-tested thing that you know is going to work, right? And with there are some customers that are doing that, Netflix is one of them, and that was the architecture we built years ago, that I built years ago with them. But more and more customers are getting to that point where they either are doing that or they want to do that. And then the thing is, how do you test that? And that's where you end up with chaos engineering 
and the new announcement of the failure injection simulator, fault injection simulator. So you can basically put faults into your environment and show that your system can deal with those faults. And the new product, the new service we've announced gets deeper into the system than you can from outside. And that's really why we had to build it. We, we, we're getting into some APIs and layers of the control planes that we wouldn't expose to customer APIs normally. So you've now exposed more private APIs to drive failure injection, you're saying? We haven't exposed the APIs to to the pub, to be public. We've exposed the capability through the service, the failure injection service. Okay. Yeah, got it. So, okay, so and, and I think the, the key point that you made is, you know, we're moving from disaster recovery, which, yeah, insurance policy never paid off. And, yeah, like you, the only cases I know of sort of, you know, Fortune 100 uh, usage of that insurance policy is when there was, it, it was an actual, you know, massive fire on the West Coast or something of that sort. And then things never worked as planned anyway. So from disaster recovery to chaos engineering, now, now to continuous resilience. So if you could just, can you just describe how you think about continuous resilience from some from that? application architecture level, but I think the really interesting thing uh, that you started to talk about is, is actually this human factors and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of safety community uh, level being a part of this, right? Where, you know, the wrong yeah. action is taken and all of a sudden you've actually flooded flooded um, the system with traffic that shouldn't have been there. So this is this is a more holistic view of um, chaos engineering than I've, than, than I've seen. So if you could just describe yeah. So some chaos engineering, you have an application, say a microservice, you inject some faults into it. It's got like, like five dependencies, whatever dependency goes offline or becomes slow or starts giving you errors and you're, you're hardening your microservice. So that's a relatively well understood model. It's kind of nicely contained. And you should be doing that for every microservice you've got, right? This larger scale thing is like a zone level failure. Like what happens if every resource in a zone goes offline or if a particular service in the zone stops working or something like that? how do you respond and like you said i've got into the safety community a little bit more uh, there's a few key people here sydney dacker is probably the main one and i like his drift into failure book is something i've been recommending for forever i did an entire talk based on chapter two of that book which is about a plane crash and i wrote the talk while i was on a plane and it was a little uncomfortable for people uh, when i gave it that was a go to chicago talk from 20 I don't know, 17 or so. I could dig that out for the show notes, figure out, find the actual link for it. We'll add the link. And there's a guy called Todd Conklin who has a podcast called The Pre-Accident Podcast, and he's one of the leading lights in this space. And I actually went on his podcast and did a, and chatted to him about chaos engineering. And he comes from, he was one of the, well, he, he ran safety for the Los Alamos labs in, or Sandia labs or something, like a nuclear, you know, testing nuclear bombs. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't get that wrong. You need some good safety around this stuff. And he's um, like a really deep thinker in this space and just a really entertaining podcast worth listening if you're into this. And John Osborne's been on it, a bunch of people. So every, every now and again, he dips into sort of the DevOps and software safety community, but mostly it's about industrial safety. You know, I've got an aluminum smelting plant or I've got, or, I'm, or a construction site and I'm trying not to kill the workers, right? That kind of thing. And it's really good to have that perspective because they've been learning things over the years and we look at it and there's no blameless post-mortems, all this kind of stuff comes from that space, yeah. right? And you know, John Allspore in particular is deeply into this and lots of good research that he's done. I have a slightly different take on it because I'm coming at it to try and solve a slightly different problem from John, but you know, it's all very aligned in what we're doing. And 
I think um, the key thing here is if you look at a control system, I tried to draw a control diagram which has, and this goes to MIT's, uh, Nancy Leveson's book, Engineering a Safer World. She's an MIT professor, or I think she's a professor there. She runs a big team. And there's this technique where you you lay out a control system and you're treating your, your reliability as a control system problem and you're using all of the decades of research into control theory to do a much better job than sort of the making it up as you go along approach a lot of software engineers have. You know, there is a body of work there which I'm trying to expose to software engineers. And so you have your, your data plane, which is the business service that's doing the work. Then you have a control plane, which is all the code you wrote, which is managing that, which is doing like fault analysis, it's doing uh, performance monitoring, it's maybe doing fraud analysis and looking for you know bad actors or filtering at the front end. All of that is control plane activity. It's not the core business logic. And that control plane can only manage the data plane if the data plane is behaving in a predictable way. So it's got a it's got a model of the thing it's controlling, which is implicit, which is if you see this metric do this, it's that alert, like if then else kind of thing, if this then that kind of idea that you have, or your or your autoscaler saying if if your CPU gets busy, add some more instances. Right. And of course, if you're out of memory, your CPU won't get busy, your machine will be sitting there idle and it won't add instances. So yeah, your model was wrong, right? So that's a class of failure is model model failure, looking at the wrong metric. And then sitting above that is the human layer, which is another control plane layer, which is looking at this whole system. And the human has a model of the controlled system and the control plane. And every operator will have a slightly different model because they all know different things. And then you get all these problems where operators have different models and there's conflicts and they're looking at the wrong data and they're using run books that are out of date and everything goes to, goes wrong. So that's kind of the, there's a fairly detailed discussion of the typical hazards. And there's basically a hazard checklist for sensor data, for control actions and for model problems. And what I'm really trying to get to in this really short summary was like a, there's a lot, you know, distilled version was like, Go look at these checklists, think about your own, like try and draw the control model for your system and just run through these checklists. And, and this is like looking at the wires, not the boxes. You know, you, you effectively have a box and wire diagram. Instead of saying what could go wrong with this box, say what could go wrong with the wires connecting the boxes, which is the information flows and the control flows. And then I don't care, the box is a black box now. If it starts misbehaving, some of the outputs are going to be different, right? And I should be able to, I should have enough outputs to be able to tell that it's misbehaving. But I don't need to really get into what's happening inside that black box. So it's a sort of good way of thinking about the abstractions. It's kind of a brain dump on that technique. And yep. I've got a few customers I'm working with with that and some solutions architects where we're trying to actually come up. The next step is to actually have a real control diagram for a real application and I'm not quite got there yet. Yeah, Adrian, I think this this is this is huge from my point of view. I'll, I'll uh, sort of relate it to an experience I had in terms of, because in the end, this is just managing safety and failure modes in, in mm -hmm. complex systems, right? And I'll never forget this trip I made to the software and hardware lab of an electric car manufacturer. And then it was, it was, I was talking with the inverter team. And 
I, I, they said, yeah, yeah, so we have hundreds of engineers working on the software for the inverter. I said, what? Like, what? how do you have hundreds of developers working on soft, you know, this embedded software for, for an inverter? And I asked them to, sh to show me because that's, you know, I thought it was really neat, but I, I had no idea why. And if, you know, if we really think of the inverter, which is just you know, putting current onto, um, onto an electric drive motor, uh, they said, and I just always thought of it as that lowest plane, like, like your data plane, right? That's actually pretty straightforward. The, and the way that that can, it's the control pane where all the software is running. Yep. Because in that inverter, you can have over 30 years, every single component malfunction in different ways. And as they put it to me, no matter what the human controller does, it can never apply a bit of gas and then end up going through the car in front of them, right? Yeah. You can never have that kind of failure, regardless of what misreadings you're getting from the hundreds of sensors on these things and so on. So yeah. I think there's something so profound about this observability and control, this SPTA model that, that you're now applying for cloud-scale systems. Yeah, yeah. When you're in industrial control systems, and that's a key one, yeah, you have to get it done right, and you have to be able to deal with every wire going into that thing could could be could have a bad connector on it. Yeah, like, exactly. So what are you going to do? What, what's it supposed to do? It's got to say it's got to fail safe. I have like a, a slightly well. The first times I ran into this was before I joined. I was a software engineer working in embedded systems, and a friend of mine was an expert witness at a trial because somebody had built a circuit for controlling a baby incubator for premature babies. And the circuit failed, and it failed on, oh. and it overheated the baby and killed the baby. Wow. And it's like, so like a, this is the kind of thing that sticks in your mind. Oh yeah, don't do that, right? Yeah. Let's make sure that all the failures are going to fail safe, and you have to think about everything that could go wrong, anything life critical, anything that's going, that's controlling machinery. And then when we're looking at large scale systems, sort of cloud based systems. You can only automate so much. There's always going to be humans in the loop. There's this term that Sidney Decker has called synoptic illegibility, <laughs> which yeah. which is uh, one of those words. What what do you what is that again? So a synopsis is a summary of how something works, right? Can you write a synopsis for this thing? If you cannot write a synopsis for how to operate a thing, then it is illegible. Right. So these there are systems that you cannot you can write in theory how it works, but how it actually works in practice is a human every now and again will get in there and tweak it. Yeah. <clears throat> That's because most processes that of any that are reasonably complex have synoptic illegibility and there has to be a human watching over it and you cannot automate everything yeah. that's in there because it's not you're not going to capture you do that work to rule thing, right? Work to rule systems don't work well. Right. If you follow the the actually what it says in the run book, you will end up running off the end of the run book and into a, into a no man's land, right? Yeah, and then this, I mean, some of this just seems so pragmatic. Again, it's, I, I encourage everyone to dig into this part of your talk, but the fact that this, the FUD of alerts from a human point of view is, is like a fail always on. There, mm -hmm. There's no information in it for the human, so they, you know, they take an action and then further floods the system with requests. So, fascinating. Yeah. And then Adrian, I want to ask this. The, I mean, I think the really interesting thing I'm noticing, and I think in how you're applying these concepts, is with this kind of continuous DevOps mindset, right? Because I think, like you said with Lambda, right? Like the compute scaling's there, the, the storage, all of this is there. But I certainly have heard organizations say that, well, how, you know, we've, we've set up our build pipelines. And I think it's generally a good practice for them to have one set of well governed DevOps and delivery pipelines. You know, you've now touched on 
how organizations should think about pipelines that that are at least at the outset going to have you know let's say some microservices some you know some other legacy applications and and then some lambda how how do you think really about applying these cuz you're mentioning you know, continuous resilience you're mentioning applying you know lambda to existing build pipelines and new services aws has for that again i think from from that devops and delivery point of view what have you learned over the course of the last year that can help people you know apply this yeah. to really to their pipeline i think continuous delivery i mean from talking to jess humble over the years like if it hurts do it more often until you figure out how to make it stop hurting that was one of those principles like why people weren't doing continuous delivery and hundreds of releases or thousands of releases a day or whatever and so if you look at continuous delivery of code then you look at so what else needs to be continuous and security needs to be continuous you need continuously provable state of audit state right so you want continuous compliance not point in time somebody turns up with a clipboard and asks you awkward questions compliance toward it so you want to be able to prove that the system has always been compliant because you have an audit trail in a tamper proof log so that's that's continuous compliance and then from availability point of view, instead of having the sort of annual failover tests, which everybody spends a month preparing for, it's kind of like the annual audit, right? It's something which you should be continuously ready to do and continuously prove that you can fail over and that whatever goes wrong, the mitigation plans that you've got are known to work, right? And that's a state of being which you get to it's like and it's the same kind of transition you go from sort of your annual releases of software to continuous delivery all of these things the security the availability and the software and the feature delivery all, be all become continuous and you can get this this economy of scale that the there is no economy of scaling things doing smaller chunks are better the more you bundle together, the harder it is to do. So you want to have lots and lots of tiny tests and lots of tiny proofs in the system that, that show you that uh, everything is, is working right. So that's kind of <laughs> and the are you saying Go as far as injecting failures into production as, as mm -hmm. part of your delivery pipeline? Yeah. So, I mean, your delivery pipeline is, is really puts an artifact into production, right? So then when that artifact appears, I mean, I'm just going back to the model we had Kind of just think of the model we had at Netflix. Like when a new when a new version of a service appears in the test account, that causes a trigger, which causes the security system to go and run a penetration test on it. It's mm -hmm. just automatic. Every new service will get pen tested. You just it's just a default thing, right? And if you left a bunch of ports open, you shouldn't have. You'll find out immediately. Whatever. And the same thing for performance. Every new service goes through a ramp test where you basically start it up, look at the error rate, look at the response time, and it's a microservice. It does one thing. You just ask it to do that thing at a higher and higher rate until it keels over. And you okay, one instance of this can do 800 things a second or whatever it happens to be. And that data is then collected. And the error rate was at a reasonable level. Okay, you passed your canary test in we have passed your ramp test or whatever you want to call it, your stress test, it's now a candidate for production. So that's just a step. When it goes into production, you run a canary test in production, which is basically chaos testing. You run a bunch of them side by side and you maybe inject some faults into it, but you're looking for its ability to behave as, at least as well as the previous version of the code. You run some side by side tests and maybe you actually run some chaos tests against both of them to show that 
the same, it's responding at least as well to the chaos attacks as well as the regular use cases. So it just becomes part of that pipeline for building hardened uh, code that's going to work in, in production. Yeah, I think that that's such a fascinating, powerful thing, right? Is that is that the pipeline now now touches live production to drive resiliency, right? And yeah. I think a lot of organizations have gone to the point where the, their pipeline is doing the, the penetration testing, it's doing you know, scanning of various sorts, whether it's for licenses or or other issues, and uh, and and now the pipeline actually extends exactly that, that that same way to production and and chaos engineering. So, yeah, the the other thing, I mean, just going back to announcements at reInvent, we announced that you can actually package a Lambda deliverable as a container now. So you can use the same pipeline, build pipeline for yes. building containers and also for packaging Lambda functions. I mean, you're packaging it differently because Lambda functions would have different code in it, but you can use the same build pipeline to deliver into both containers and serverless as, you know, so for your long long-running, highly scaled, you know, very specific instance type services where you're using containers, you can use the same pipeline for that as for your Lambda functions where you have your like rapidly iterating business logic. Yeah, that's, So that's, that was just yet another one of those bits of friction that we took away. Yeah, and I think this is and this is the interesting thing is what, what we're seeing in terms of how much is provided now as a service from these pipeline services to failure injection services. And I think maybe this is probably a good bridge into, into the wordly mapping because the pace of change, and I, I certainly know that at TASTAP, we're always looking at this, is like, why did we build that thing on top of EKS when, you know, when it, when it's on, it looks like it, it's already there already, or there's there's some other open source project that's handling that, or, or another, another service that's been launched by AWS. So I think one of the sort of interesting things for, you know, for technologists and large organizations is, is to actually map out where they put the organizational efforts, right? And of course, like to think of everything as a, as a product, your own platforms and data pipelines and APIs are products as well. But the pace at which you know, you know, and AWS uh, and others are actually delivering these new services, to me, it was a pretty profound thing that there's now this failure injection service. I thought, you know, that, that kind of, I thought that was amazing. So these worldly maps, I think, for you know, just to connect the, the rapidly evolving technology landscape, what's core, what's context? This has been a common theme on the podcast. You know, where sort of where do you invest in, in order to drive the most innovation? Where, where do you not invest, right? Where do you actually rely on services in the shift to cloud? Can you just tell us how you think about this this strategic decision making tool of worldly maps? Because I think it is. I agree with you. It's such a powerful tool to help organizations navigate a very rapidly changing uh, technology landscape? I think worldly mapping, you can use it for so many different things that you can kind of get lost to start with. So I like to focus on one really solid use case that's very, that I, we see all the time in the cloud, which is a technology stack and how it is evolving over time, where the four stages are I wrote some custom code that does a thing. Like if I'm writing a, I'm writing a file to disk in my own custom format and I'm reading it back from disk in that format, right? That's custom code. The next phase would be, you know, I could use a database for that. So I will buy a commercial off the shelf database and I will use that to store my data. So I'm no longer writing to the disk. I've got, I've, I've, I'm using custom, I'm using a commercial product. And I'm going, you know, I actually, there's actually a pretty good open source version of that commercial product. So I'm going to use that. I'm just going to use MySQL because I can use it for free. 
And then, and then the final step is, I, you know, it's a pain in the neck running my SQL servers. Why don't I just use RDS and somebody else runs it for me as a service? So now there's a service there which will just store my data for me and I read it back and I don't have to think about file systems. I don't think I have to think about buying a database and running a database. It's just a service. Somebody else is doing it all for me. So those are the four steps that are characteristic of technology layers, right? And if you map out your value chain from the most customer-facing piece of your technology stack, which is probably your mobile phone app or a web page or something, all the technologies you're using to build it, and then you layer them in their dependency order. And at the back of them, this the dependency goes, well, this code is running on a machine and the machine's running in a data center in a cloud. And that cloud depends on buildings and data and power and all those things. So you can go all the way down the stack to the utilities underneath. So the, the, the Wardley map I'm describing basically is a value chain top to bottom, and it's the evolution left to right. And things in the value chain migrate from left to right over time. So that example I gave, your know, custom written code evolves to a database, evolves to an open source database, evolves to an as a service database. Right? And then you stop caring about that. It becomes part of your lower level infrastructure. You build something new on top that was only, you'd only have time to build if you didn't have to worry about the database. It frees up your time to build the higher level function. So this is the other part of a worldly map is that is to push things off your need to worry about it space so that you can do more innovation. You're always like, what is the new thing at the top of the value chain that's on the top left side that's new and innovative? What's the genesis thing? What is the thing that's never been built before? And that's where you should be spending all of your attention. And all the stuff underneath, you want to push it as far to the right as possible. So the way I use this with a customer is I say, okay, what is your current technology stack? And we, we draw the value chain and we draw it out as it is on a whiteboard or in a shared space or something. And the customer looks at it and everyone in the room looks at it and says, yep, that looks like what we run. Like, oh, what about this thing? Okay, well, I forgot that. Where does this fit? So people like, until they've run out of things and they've run out of arguing about what order the dependencies are in. And then usually by this point, they've actually, there's a shared understanding in the room of what their actual architecture is. And most people don't understand what they're taking. And that is your technology stack. Right. Then you can say, well, what do you want to do with it? Well, here's an existing, what, what programs have you currently got in place? Well, we're migrating this to this. Okay. Almost all of the technology innovation projects you have will be moving to the right. right? You'll be taking out some proprietary, you know, you're replacing Oracle with Postgres, for example. Okay. You're moving a book off the shelf, highly cost license, enterprise licensing thing to something you can use for you know, low-cost licensing or, or as-a-service licensing, that kind of migration. People are working through all of those. So you start to draw what's already on, in plan, and people can then see, okay, that's what we're working on. Again, people in the room will discover that things they didn't know that their colleagues were doing. And then you can say, what else do we need to do, and where do you want to end up? And that's kind of like becomes then a template for communicating about what is your, what is your cloud migration really about? Yeah. And once you've done that, you've drawn all these worldly maps and, you know, most people that haven't seen a worldly map before go like, well, that was so clear. What the hell is going on? And you're not getting into the weeds of exactly what your architecture is. It's just that, you know, Kubernetes depends on Etcetera D. That's it. 
you know, it does. So are you running both of those yourself? Or are you running it on EKS? Are you running a custom version? You know, what, what are you doing here? Right? And every now and again, you'll pull something that's at the right-hand side of the evolution and pull it over to the left. And because they say, oh, electricity is like such a fungible utility. And then you look at, well, a Tesla supercharger is not a off-the-shelf thing, right? You do not plug a Tesla at home into a wall socket. They had to invent new ways to deliver ridiculous amounts of energy safely. And so there was innovation in that electricity provisioning layer when, when uh, charging car charging came along as a new requirement. So you suddenly see innovation in some area that was deeply in the, yeah, this is just boring, right? You know how to put in a 40-amp socket in the wall, but all the technology to deliver that. So that's kind of the, it's not that innovation isn't happening on the right side because you're building in, you're innovating in building services. It's just that from a customer's dependency stack, you're moving to the right. What I did in the, in the talk was I picked the Kubernetes ecosystem and looked at the CNCF landscape, which has millions of icons for projects that most of you haven't heard of. And I picked out the, a, the ones I thought I'd heard of that formed a stack for Kubernetes. Like what are the dependencies? What, pe what are the projects that make up a Kubernetes stack? And then showed how they were gradually migrating to as a service with EKS. And then during reInvent, we announced Prometheus and Grafana as a service and the, what's it called? The, there's a distro for collecting data. I forgot what it's called right now, but the thing that feeds data into Prometheus, whatever. And all of those I drew, okay, those things now move into the as a service. Yeah, you can run your own Prometheus, but now you can get it for free. Or not, you can get it without having to build it in. It's just part of the entire bundle. And Grafana, Grafana is an interesting story because the company was formed, I think the first time they ever stood up and said they existed pretty much was at a Monitorama conference where I was sitting in the audience and I'd start texting my venture capital friends saying, hey, look at this one. <laughs> I think we should invest in this. Like everyone in the audience is running this. <laughs> and it was like, this is like a huge go invest in this. And we didn't manage to get any money into it because they weren't, they didn't need money, but you know, but that was one of those ones. Where, okay. And I went and chatted to them and got to know the, the founding team pretty well. And when they started working with AWS, I was able to smooth that transition. You know, I was working in the open source team and they were talking to Grafana and sort of I was able to use the facts I knew the CEO and the people at Grafana to sort of build trust into what has turned into a really powerful relationship where Grafana are now licensing their code and their and their development resources to AWS. We're embedding it in tools at AWS and AWS has the commercial version of Grafana available as a service. So it's kind of a win-win. There's a really long-term contract behind that and you know, I was very happy to see that outcome and it's kind of a template for how to do it right how to really leverage the cloud from an open source vendor perspective so happy super happy to see that announcement building on several years of working with them yeah i mean i i have to say this when when i looked at this this diagram and itself that you created is had me for the first time understand at a higher level the dependencies of all those logos of of, of all the projects in cncf and i think yeah. that that speaks to how important this is, right? Because so often these architecture diagrams of dependencies, all our legacy systems, uh, all our applications, just 
just don't represent investment and these these kinds of horizons, right? Is, is this thing a utility? Is it going to become a utility? Should we be buying it or should we be moving more aggressively to a yeah. service that, that's provided? The make versus buy decision is something where this is incredibly powerful. And yeah. the thing about a map, and Simon keeps repeating this over and over again, Simon Wardley, it's, it shows position and movement. And if, if you draw an arrow on the graph on a graph and it doesn't make any difference what arrow, what direction the arrow points in, you haven't got a map. A map has a position you're starting with and where you're trying to get to. That's really the important aspect of it. Um, we're trying to understand where we're trying to go and what's blocking us from getting there and all those kinds of things. And yeah, there's a, and the other thing is every all maps are wrong. Some maps are useful. If you keep those two phrases in your head, then then you're because I'm certain that people will look at that map. Kubernetes guru will say you got it wrong and you've missed out a bunch of stuff. So, yeah, I know. Yeah. But there's more. There's, but from an executive level or a management level point of view, this is the major things we need to understand, and we need to make decisions on. And yeah, you can go do the details. And yes, there's a lot more stuff in there. But but from a we we are migrating to the cloud. What does that mean? Point of view. Then it makes sense. Yeah, and it, for me, in terms of the, the customer engagements I've been doing, it just addresses one of the, the key problems I've seen throughout the last couple of years of you know helping organizations shift to you know the products and value streams, which is that there tends to be a really clear understanding of of the top left of the of the business application where where most value needs to go. There tends to be some understanding of okay, we'll get this from our cloud provider, we'll get this from the, another vendor, right? So the, the the utilities, but what this makes explicit, and it and I think it's it'll be counterintuitive to a lot of people who start using it at first is. That, all those investments that a should be utilities but aren't start showing up on the map mm -hmm. and be the things that you know, are actually specific to the business, right? Let's say back to the call center, actually creating the, you know, some of the machine learning and data pipelines needed. Well, maybe you're not ready to outsource to a vendor or uh, at this point, right? That is actually yeah. the business. Like a fraud analysis model or something yeah. like that is exactly. very specific to the very kinds specific. of fraud you get on yeah. you know, having a model that's listening yeah. for patterns of calling or whatever it is that's, that are that, that thing you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. And you want to leverage as much utility as you can and use connect and sell but it actually makes explicit those investments, those product value streams that are not customer facing, but are critical to supporting key functions like like fraud detection. So, yeah, I think this is again a great tool for that kind of that that product thinking. That's that's at the investment level for the organization. And again, I think what what is so key here is that, like you said, the map has arrows and things are shifting, right? It's and, and things have been move, shifting very quickly per a bunch of what you just you know what you went through in your reinvent talk in terms of all these new services that. You know, you need to pick and choose to move to, which means sunsetting things that that you've been building in house. So, okay, awesome. So let's. Where should? Where, where do you want to go next? This, uh, I, think, I think we're getting. This is getting a bit long. So let's just quickly talk about um, some of the hardware pieces, and then where what I'm currently focused on for 2021 myself, which is. So start with what is big data, right? We've heard the phrase big data. And the original idea of big data and why we all got Hadoop clusters was we were trying to do analytics jobs that didn't fit on one machine. And Hadoop was a way of using multi breaking the problem into a way that you could throw lots of machines at the problem and using you know, you know, you need to sort a petabyte of data or whatever it was. It used to be I need to sort a terabyte of data, right? right. And then we got machines with a terabyte of RAM. Yeah. Which is kind of where I'm going with this, right? At some point, the size of the machine one machine you see, the amount of disk space you've got means that you can put it all in disk on one machine now. And the amount of RAM you've got means you can process it in memory on one machine. So what is the amount, what is the largest problem you can solve on a single machine, which means it's no longer big data. So the definition of big data is a moving target is one way of thinking about it. 
Then there's this sort of hierarchy of what you can fit on disk on one machine versus what will fit in memory on one machine versus what will fit in the GPU memory on one machine. Because once you get something that fits in GPU memory, you can, and nowadays that's like 40 gigabytes for one GPU. And that's quite large, really. I remember when, like, yeah, I'm old, but I remember like that. It's one gigabyte for an entire database on disk was big. But anyway, so now 40 gigabytes in memory on the GPU. And I try to remember, it's, I think it's 7,000 cores in the G, in one GPU. And it's a SIMD machine, so it's, you know, but if you think about, okay, all the, let's say I have 40 gigabytes of data there, and I want to do a full table scan of that data. Look at every, look for something in it. I have 7,000 cores doing that in parallel across my 40 gigabytes of data. The internal memory bandwidth is 1.2 terabytes per second, okay? This is, it's this is a ludicrous numbers. If you have any idea, like normal machines, are memory bandwidth is about 30 to 40 gigabytes per second. Just to give you, that's how fast memory is on a normal machine. Inside a GPU, it's 1.2 terabytes per second. The M1's got pretty good, uh, gone a little better, but yeah. But the M, yeah, M1, so a Graviton is better, is better. This is why, you know, the ARM, the latest rant, you know, it's a whole other thing, but um, we could get into ARM chips, but the point is that there's this sort of you hit this as as your problem shrinks all of a sudden you can you get this ridiculous speed up becomes available to you and then we have a cluster of eight gpus together which gives you 320 gigabytes and they're on a 600 gigabyte per second nv link which is higher latency than being inside one gpu but the bandwidth is there so you get to do algorithms, and these things are used for you know deep learning training. But that's not the only thing you can do with them. I think this, and then we announce this EC2 cluster system, which is four thousand of these in in a cluster, which is just again ludicrous system. It's like that I, I, I forget it's some number of petabytes of RAM. Okay, okay. I just want to, I just love love throwing these sort of ridiculously large hardware things around again. Like, hey, what problems can you solve that you couldn't plausibly solve a few years ago with this stuff? Is there list... a graph database that doesn't fit into this then? Well, this is one of the uses for these machines. Like the biggest memory machine we have right now is 24 terabytes. We use it for SAP 8 HANA normally, but you can get several terabytes just as a regular instance size and the latest GPU instance has over a terabyte of RAM in it. So terabytes are relatively easy to come by. Tens of terabytes are, are there if you really need them. And if you want to run a graph database that's non-partitionable, it's hard to partition graph databases, they're one of the use cases. So that so I then started looking at what could you do with this that you couldn't do before. And as well as things like SAP HANA graph databases, had this idea that you could deploy all of your containers inside the same machine so that the containers could talk to each other at memory speed. And right now, with the, the traffic from one container to another normally goes outside the instance and back in again because it goes to the switch. And the switch, the containers assume that the other containers are not on the same machine yeah. as them. So data gets scattered, you know, routed. So the, the question is, what, what, how quick could you be if you, and how much traffic would you get rid of if you fast path that? And how much overhead could you take out? And it turns out most of the overhead of talking on the network is serialization and deserialization of data. And the reason you do that is because you're cross, crossing a trust boundary. 
a failure boundary. And if you have, if you're in the same address space, you're not actually crossing a, a right. failure boundary. Because so you don't have to serialize and deserialize. So you can use a shared memory transport yep. where you don't deserialize. You pass the raw data and you just update it in place. So all that so does goes away as well. So there's a, there's a few things here where, and then there's some other stuff you run into. So that I've, I've got a whole series of layers of thinking here, which are, this is much more of a um, kind of a long-term research. But what it lets you do is think about taking a monolith, breaking it into individual pieces, which are independently deployable microservices, but they're running in the same address mm -hmm. space. So you get back some of the efficiency of the monolith. Mm -hmm. Although you get the, the agility deployment of a microservices model. Anyway, I, I, I came up with a name for this. I call it Petalith, the Petalith architecture. So, I don't know. And I've been sort of bouncing the idea around a bit, but I, I don't think anyone's ever gone to build this yet. So this is definitely something that I think is sounds plausible, but, you know, there's a lot of bits needed to do this. And I'm kind of floating the idea in my talk and in this podcast, because like, if anyone's working on this, let me know, because I think this is interesting stuff and the software architectures we need to manage it are a little different. And then I highlighted some companies and research projects in that part in the talk. So Dan Bittman has an operating system called Twizzler, which is interesting. One of the other things that's happening, which hasn't really got here yet, is persistent memory. So main memory being persistent instead of volatile. And he's built an operating system for that. Uh, there's a database company out of the UK called Brightlight with Ys in it, B-R-Y-T-L-Y-T, which has a GPU that runs entirely in the G a database, Postgres compatible, runs entirely inside the GPU and can do these ridiculously fast lookups because it's running at GPU speed. Uh, and a few other things, a few other people I listed in there. So that's kind of the, that was the next, that was the next bit. There's me trying to think about, and I don't think this is something people are going to do in 2021. Right. I think the research projects and the interesting startups are happening and it's very fringe. I'm saying that this is in four or five years, this is something that could be mainstream, you know, and I've sort of been at the beginning of things before. This smells to me like the beginning of a thing. So I think this is, um, I'm sort of doing a long-term prediction here that this is a place that could be interesting to play with. Right. But I guess, so Adrian, I guess this will probably track like your previous prediction. So it'll be ubiquitous in 10 years, but, but until then it's, <laughs> it sounds like that the actual trend of moving more and more compute into and, and storage uh, into GPU and memory is, is just going to continue, right? Where, where there will be use cases that organizations and enterprises yeah. have for putting the entire GraphDB into memory and services that, that are around right now for actually heading in this architectural direction, even though if this happens, you know, this will completely change. It will change architecture for, for microservices. So. Yeah. So back in two, 2008, I did a keynote on how we should be using ARM chips in data centers. I did it at Usenix, I think. So I was about a decade ahead of where I needed to be. But I also went and I called them milli computers and I did a, I, I got all the domains, milli computing, milli whatever. And of course, nobody ever went, that has nobody, not nobody ever used that term, but, <laughs> but I was right in the end. It was like milliwatt level computing. Like, and you have all those domain, domain names that must have added up. Yeah, domain names don't cost that much. But, um, <laughs> I keep saying somebody wants to actually bring out milli computer, make me an offer. I have all of the domains. 
So I also went up and said, oh, I'm going to call this thing a petalith. So I grabbed all the domains for petalith that I could find. But somebody snuck, snuck in on the Twitter handle. So, oh, well, so I, I don't have that. But so, so I'm sure it would end up being called something different. But I don't really care what it's called. You've got to put a, put a stake in the sand or whatever it is, uh, stake in the ground on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this would be a whole new generation of, I mean, ev everything right now turns into electricity and cost, right? Is is all the network traffic, all of the storage, this, this would just fundamentally transform, I think, the compute profile for it. Yeah. And the problem, of course, is you have a failure domain of a machine dies. Right. Then, so you also need, uh, yeah. but we have 400 gigabits now. 400, we have four 100 gigabit links on, on the instances. Mm -hmm. So we have 400 gigabits of bandwidth to pump your data that you're changing to another instance in another zone. I put in a different That's across zones. Oh. I, well, it's out of the instance. Yeah. If I'm trying to replicate somewhere safe, I put this, the other instance in another zone. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all the data you're... So you've got massive amounts of bandwidth to have all of those containers talking to lots of other containers somewhere else or Lambda functions or whatever. Anyway, so that's kind of the the other thing you have to the the reason why people don't want to put everything in one machine is because when it dies, it all goes away in one go. But if you get your chaos engineering right, you don't care. It's just like another chaos monkey problem. I just yeah. lost a zone, but I'm okay with losing a zone. The system still works, right? If I really can automatically fail over a zone loss, then losing one of these massive machines is just like a zone loss. It's it sort of all ties together in some way, but. Like, like I said, I'm kind of just spitballing ideas here and trying to, this is not a in any way an AWS, AWS policy or architecture trend or anything. It's something I've been talking about for more than five years, and the, I've been talking about this way before I joined AWS. So it's something that I think is likely to happen eventually. It's far enough out that most customers aren't thinking about it at yeah. this point. So given that AWS is a customer-driven organization, we have to get the customers thinking about it so that then they ask AWS to do it, and then we end up building it, right? So I'm, trying to, so I'm trying to, like, <laughs> so how do you do chicken and egg? Well, start yeah. off with a thing, a cardboard cutout chicken and wave it at people. I don't know how you, <laughs> how you um, bootstrap this process, right? So, yeah, exactly. And Adrian, I think this, I mean, this is just fascinating. So I've got, to, I will just transition myself from this blowing my mind to, to that other topic I want to make sure we get to because all these petabytes sound like a lot of electricity. But you, you wouldn't believe, so how much of, look at your application, how many cycles in your application is spent converting thing to strings and back again? Yeah, that's a lot of electricity. Yeah. It's, it's a ridiculously yeah. high proportion That's of all compute cycles are being spent serializing and deserializing. Yeah. If you're doing XML, you're just wasting that, oh wasting ridiculous amounts. Can you amounts, imagine right? actually getting the carbon footprint of all the serialization? Exactly. Uh, so, so I think that this is, in, if, if you could get a architecture where a lot of the serialization wasn't needed, but you still had all the other benefits of microservices, then you get back to the efficiency of the monolith. Just another, you know, monoliths are, have their places and they're very efficient. They're just hard to modify quickly because they bundle too many things in, too many concerns in one place. You have to separate the concerns. So anyway, so that's kind of lead segueing into the final subject I had, which is around sustainability. And there were two announcements at reInvent I want to highlight. One is that Amazon, as of 2020, is the world's biggest buyer of renewable energy. And it was over three gigawatts of capacity is now in contract. Wow. Not all rolled out, obviously, but we have contracts and we've bought 
just an insane amount. The total amount we have, I forget the exact number, it's like four and a half gigabit, gigawatts, something like that. It's a huge amount of electricity capacity, and that's because we are moving to, by, we have a path to 2025 of having all of Amazon electricity, AWS and Amazon, being sourced green, you know, renewable. And the problem Amazon has is it's, it's a logistics company. We do a huge amount of moving atoms around, whereas the other cloud providers are mostly moving electrons around. So Amazon as a company has a much bigger footprint than, say, uh, Google or, or Microsoft. It's actually closer to Apple. Like if you think of Apple moves lots of hardware around, you know, and Amazon's in the logistics business, it has a similar kind of thing. Our footprint is big because we move so many things. So we're working on a very holistic view of solving that for all of Amazon, not just focusing on the AWS part of it. Werner also had a section in his keynote where he talked about renewable architecting for sustainability and how you build that into the way you think about your architecture. And the best proxy to optimize for is cost. If you've got a low, if you save cost, you have lower AWS bill, then you're also saving carbon footprint because it's very, very closely related and it's the best thing you can do. And things like not running cron jobs that they're all on top of the hour. So you get a big load spike out of it. So trying to avoid load spikes unless you absolutely have to for business reasons is, is another yeah, like, Adrian, can you just trick. dive into this? Because I think the the how profound the savings are from the economies of scale of, of cloud and just how much of the plant's carbon footprint will move to yeah. workloads running in the cloud. I think just, just this cron example of the fact that if you centralize all of this into a centralized you know, set of control panes, you can actually just dramatically reduce electricity usage. So, so t just tell quickly about this cron job story, because I think it's the perfect well, thing people have in their minds. I'll get the, so if you take a typical data center, um, there was a study in 2019, I think, which we published, which showed that this is the efficiency of a typical data center. We took the median data center, and then if you take that and compare it to the cloud, we run much higher utilization, and we run much more efficient, more modern hardware. And because of that, uh, with 3.6 times more efficient, right, in terms of carbon footprint than running than a median data center, right, just going to cloud. And then taking into account, in addition, the renewable energy that we're sourcing compared to the renewable energy that a typical data center resource uses, we end up 80%, 88% saving in carbon footprint from just taking the same workload and running it in the data you know, same same Intel processor type, same workload, didn't do anything, you just moved it to cloud. That saves you 88% as of 2019, and we're continuing to improve that number as we roll out more renewable energy. So that's kind of the baseline. And then you look at, well, how does, how do workloads that, how do workloads drive the consumption in the cloud? And if you look at the average utilization of a system, that is not the carbon footprint. It's the peak, right? So, and it's not the peak utilization, it's the peak provisioned capacity. So think of how much capacity you had to provision. What is the peak usage of that? And then you dial back to the average utilization, right? And that peak peak provision capacity is driven by the, the sharpest and tallest load spike in your system. 
And if you can get rid of cron jobs that like synchronize activity across lots of machines that all hit your network switches at the same time, or hit the AWS control plane at the same time, or fire all your Lambda functions at the same time, then you're actually reducing the amount of provision capacity that AWS needs to to handle these spikes. And we manage this for you, and it's our job to minimize it. The more synchronized activity that people have, particularly around on the, on the hour and on midnight load spikes, the better we can optimize. So there's just a little nice optimization that it doesn't really hurt you to be one minute after midnight or one minute before midnight, but you're actually reducing the carbon footprint of the overall capacity that we have to provide to service your Lambda functions, for example. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Is that this kind of optimization of electricity and carbon uh, can only be done at a at a global cloud scale. You should try, yeah. you should just try see what happens in, in AWS. Just shift everyone's clocks by by a, a few minutes and, uh, and see yeah. what that. <laughs> and what we're doing. So internally, we're now working across all the service teams and sort of one by one and sort of saying, okay, so how do we improve the carbon footprint of this service, right? How do we make this into a goal across all of AWS and all of Amazon? It's already, I mean, there's a VP of sustainability for Amazon, Cara Hurst, who's been there six years. We have a climate pledge. Uh, there's a whole lot of work. There's a large team there working on sustainability. They're putting solar panels on the top of AWS facilities, Amazon facilities, not AWS, the Amazon shipping facilities, all that kind of stuff, doing deals to buy electric vans, delivery vans. So there's a huge program going on at Amazon, and I'm basically working on the AWS component of how do we blend what we're doing into that. And that's kind of the final part of my this talk was just sort of saying one of the things I'm doing. We're still early days on a lot of this, but the the project I'm involved in is a Linux Foundation project called Open Source Climate, which is to build a uh, a standard way for financial organizations that manage assets to look at the asset risk of climate impact on their portfolio. So that's what's driving it. And then the other side of this is that every public company is starting to deal with reporting their own climate footprint, at least quarterly, sort of an annual or quarterly basis, a part of your quarterly financial results. You put a, you put a carbon footprint in there. Amazon now has its own footprint report. You can go see what that is. It's done at the Amazon complete level, not at the AWS level. Um, and a lot of our customers do as well. And it's starting to become mandated. So the European community has a mandate that people should do this. Uh, other countries, one by one, are having this mandate. And it's one of the sort of election pledges of the Biden administration is that they are going to have this mandate as well. So it's going to become, during 2021, this is going to become top of mind for a lot of public companies. Like, okay, how do we report this? How do we do it in a standard way? What are the models? So OS Climate is standardizing those models as an open source pro project, data science models and data sets so that you'll be able to do the, the basic modeling using the open source data set. And then we're going to build a uh, more detailed sort of provider ecosystem marketplace on top of that for people to kind of build a more specific stuff. But we're going to take the base level of reporting and make that an open source generic thing. So again, the Wardley map of this, so we're taking a bunch of proprietary fragmented data reporting models, 
open sourcing it and moving it to kind of an as a service with this OS Climate Data Commons. So I'm basically leading along with one of our Amundsen sustainability uh, leaders, uh, Anna, Anna Pinheira Prevet. She's been running the Amazon Sustainability Data Initiative for a few years, and I'm working with her on OS Climate, and we're building out our AWS's response to, we're prototyping it for OS Climate, basically. So that's keeping me busy right now. That's awesome. That that's so great. I mean, this is I think a, a topic that a lot of us care so deeply about, which is how how the technology landscape is is changing the you know the the planet and how we do better for our kids. And just again, your view on the fact that the way that we approach you know, cloud scale architecture actually has has a massive opportunity to do much better than than what we're doing today. And that yeah. uh, I guess the more the more you go serverless, the more green you are is the bottom line. Just it does help. It does does have a you've got hundred percent utilization and all yeah. of the time stuff you're not using we can use for somebody else. So it yeah. the problem the optimizing for carbon footprint moves to an AWS responsibility. Right. So that's another thing we're going to handle for you. So to some extent, just if you optimize for cost and use serverless, you're doing most of what's needed. Anyway, so that's kind of it. And then just looking at where we're going with this uh, OS climate stuff, I think um, the key thing here is we're leveraging the power of the financial system to drive public companies to invest in climate change mitigation because they have to, because otherwise their future value of their stock will be marked down, right? So what we do when, when you're doing an asset model, you're saying, you know, in four years time, you know, this stock is going to be impacted by climate change. Yeah. And it's the economic impact, the market impact, and the direct impact, like your buildings are underwater, right? That's a direct impact. The market impact is your market goes away. If you're currently operating gas stations, uh, well, we're going to move to electric cars. So that is a market shift. And then there's a customer sentiment, basically. That's the marketing shift. And then there's the economic impact. We're going to be spending more and more on, on climate mitigation, mm -hmm. building seawalls or whatever. Are you are you making money out of building seawalls or, or are you being impacted by the economy diverting more resources into climate mitigation so there's less money to spend on whatever you have, right? So that all these things are driving, those three things go into the model and you say if you're not figuring out how to be respond to this, then you're going to be marked down by the asset managers and your your stock will be worthless and worth not worthless, but marked down over time. So it provides a big financial incentive for people to go fix this problem, which this is the best way of doing it. Right. And so you just just to wrap up so people can check out OS dash climate now to start. Yeah, OS dash climate.org is yeah. the we don't we haven't done the first release of the of the OSC data commons yet. We're working towards an alpha release um, sometime in the next few months that will be a little data lake where you can see the basic models and see some of the data. And you know, the our first alpha will be pretty low functionality, but we're trying to gather to all the data and the models together and bundle it into a GitHub account. You know, GitHub slash OS hyphen C is where it will appear eventually. Awesome, and I certainly hope that that the world's large organizations are using all using this well before the, that ten year mark that that we keep referring yeah. to. Excellent. Well, Adrian, thank you so much. I think our listeners will have many, many hours of materials to get through. <laughs> resources. How many hours is this by now? I forgot. <laughs> I'm I afraid know. to look. It's definitely the, the longest one. So, 
but, okay. uh, but no, this we is... cut a few bits out. Maybe maybe cut it up a bit. No, well, I think uh, I think we need to keep it. Last time when when we cut you off short, I got so many complaints that I'm not doing it again. We'll just all right. It. Okay. This special. All right. Podcast. Well, thank you. This has been excellent, and thanks for the um, like the opportunity to go a bit deeper on my reinvent talk and just talk about all the things I think are going on that's cool right now. Excellent. This this is this has been so great, and let's uh, let's revisit the one and five and ten year mark because I'm sure a lot of yeah. Will come I'll, I'll come back next. Do this next year and see what I got right. <laughs> see if I have any new ideas for 2022. Exactly. Excellent. Thanks so much, Adrian. Okay. Cheers. Then. Take care. A huge thank you to Adrian for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me and my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1, TheProjectTheProduct. You can find Adrian on Twitter and Medium by searching at AdrianCo. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project the Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.